Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague. Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change. Uh, on Sunday, it's Rosh Chodesh Sivan, and I'm incredibly happy uh, to welcome uh, today uh, Andy Arnovitz in Jerusalem and Shaul Bassi in Venice. Um, Andy has become a very dear friend. She's originally from the Midwest, um, and she is very modest, but I am going to say in my voice, she's one of the great artists of this generation. Um, and she and I met in connection with a project called Living Underwater, which was a project of Bet Venezia. And Bet Venezia was founded by Shaul Bassi, who's a professor of Shakespeare uh, at Kafoskari um, University. Shaul will fix my pronunciation uh, in a minute. And Shaul's family has lived continuously in Venice for 230 years. Um, and so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But first of all, Andy, I'm, I'm just interested to know how life is in Jerusalem, like you come to us for the future because everything here is still closed down and the schools have gone back. What's the mood? How's everybody feeling? How are you? Um, I think everybody here is very relieved and everything has gone back. In fact, this week the restaurants are opening, the movie theaters are opening, the shops have been open, the kids went back to school last week. Um, and the truth is, is that no one really knows what's going to happen, but I realized, and I did a little calculation last night, just to give you kind of an example of how successful Israel was in dealing with the virus. So Israel's population is, is almost 9 million people. It's like 8.8 .8 million. And New Jersey's population is about 8.9 million people. They're almost exactly the same number and almost exactly the same like geographic space. We've lost 279 people to Corona, and New Jersey's lost 10,985 people to Corona. So there's a lot of criticism of the government of how strict the lockdown was, but it, it must have worked on some level. That being said, I read an article yesterday that said something like seven people died in Jordan. Egypt is 100 million people. They had 400 deaths. So there's a lot of questions. I guess, about how it's ha been handled. But in general, Israelis are euphoric now. I mean, you just see it everywhere and also very lax. I mean, if you go out now on a sunny day, nobody's got a mask on. Interesting. So, that really does feel like the future because there's no question that I think it's not like that right now in New York or Philly. I was in uh, Central Park this morning. There are a lot of people out, but relatively few not wearing masks. And if you're not wearing a mask, somebody will scowl at you. Uh, uh, if nothing worse. I, I just have one other question, Andy, and we'll come back to this before I go to Shaul. Um, I don't actually know what your practice is as an artist in the sense of whether you simply like, you know, if you're not feeding kids or grandkids, if you, you know, as it were, go up to your studio and wait for the muse to hit you every day, or whether you're engaged in a project and then you take a break. And my question is, since this all began, how has it inflected your practice as an artist? Do you find that you haven't had time or you've been very provoked? Like, where, where, where are you on that? Um, that's a great question. So to be honest, I it, bizarrely, weirdly, I started a series called Epidemiology last summer. And it was, <laughs> yeah. So that it was inspired by some severe illnesses of friends and family members. And I started doing an exploration of what, you know, pancreatic cancer looks like on the cellular level. And then suddenly in January and February, all of this work became much more relevant. And then I started exploring what a sneeze looks like and what a cough looks like. Um, so I've had a ton of material, but I was already halfway there. 
artistically. I was already in it. Um, I know a lot of artists have been completely stifled. You know, it's, it was just this whole thing has, has brought them to a dead end. They, they're having a really hard time getting started. And for other artists, it's just been endless. Like they've been incredibly productive. I think it depends on, as a, as a person, as an individual, how much you need outside stimulation from other people. Also, my studio is in my house. You know, so no matter what the lockdown was like, all I had to do was climb the stairs. Whereas there's a lot of people whose studio yeah. is on the other side of town, they couldn't get there. Um, so for me, it's been easy, really. Thank you. And I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go over to Shaul in a second, but I wanna um, welcome onto the call, if you can hear me, Lynn Avadenka, who I think is coming in from Detroit. And Lynn is a friend and colleague of Shaul and Andy and me, and also a great artist. And Lynn, if it turns out before, between now and the end of, of this little broadcast that you have video and you want to um, come and chip in a little bit about what it's like at the moment in Detroit, uh, then, then you're warmly invited uh, to do that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, but I'm going to go over now to Shaul. So, Shaul, first of all, tell us a little bit about Bet Venezia and how that arose. And then we'd really love to know, like, what it's like in Venice. How did this, how did this begin? Like, what was the beginning and what has been the middle and, and where are you up to now? But welcome. Yeah. So, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me. Hi. Um, so, so Bet Venezia is uh, uh, an organization that uh, was created under a uh, a different and longer names in 2009 and basically wants to uh, promote uh, and share the uh, heritage of Jewish Venice that uh, strongly identified with the ghetto Venice, the place where the word and the concept of ghetto come from, which was a ghetto uh, created in 1516, so 504 years ago. <laughs> Um, by uh, blending, I would say, different Jewish communities. So it was a place that separated the Jews from the rest of the population, but it was also a place that uh, put different communities uh, with different backgrounds, different languages, different traditions in close contact and also enabled them uh, uh, paradoxically to create a very vibrant Jewish community that ended up influencing the whole of Jewish Europe and, and beyond. So um, that community then uh, became more like an Italian Jewish community over the centuries. The ghetto was finally opened in 1797. This is when my ancestors probably came from somewhere in Ashkenaz, from Germany probably. And then, and then there was the war. And after the war, the community uh, sort of survived. Um, but in the last, uh, 30 years, uh, the Jewish community has faced the same predicament of the rest of the Venetian population, which is, uh, you know, strongly linked to the current coronavirus situation, namely that tourism has become basically the only game in town that a once very uh, sort of uh, um, uh, eclectic, beautiful city and society has been depleted uh, impoverished and uh, uh, I am an academic as you mentioned our students cannot afford to live in the city young people are moving out which reflects also in the Jewish community is becoming smaller and smaller so in, at the same time uh, the ghetto Venice has become a very popular tourist destination so Bet Venezia that was created uh, uh, as an Italian slash American partnership thanks to uh, Murray Baumgarten as a um, an academic uh, from University of California, Santa Cruz, was created precisely to make the wonderful culture of Jewish Venice available, uh, accessible, and also uh, to make it an occasion for artistic recreation. This is why we've had a lot of different projects over the years, academic years, um, projects, scholarly projects, but um, I am particularly fond of the artistic projects, the one where we invite artists to live in the city, to explore Jewish Venice and to create art. And this is how I came to know Andy and, and Lynn and how some beautiful projects that I'm sure we will talk about later. Um, going back to the current situation, I am 
this is 6 p.m. now here. And till half an hour ago, I was in a square near my house where life seems to be pretty normal, except that most people were wearing a mask. So after almost three months of lockdown, we were the first Itali European country to enter lockdown. Um, we are gradually returning to normal, which is a mixed blessing because for a few weeks, we had that strange experience of seeing the city without tourists, which showed that we don't have enough residents, which is very sad, um, which put all the people that work in the tourist economy on their knees. And the one anecdote I'd like to share is that I had that really, really uncanny feeling of going to the ghetto with my um, permit the day, few days before Pesach to buy, you know, uh, matzos for Passover and it was the first time in my entire life that I saw in daylight, the ghetto completely empty. So walking through an empty city was the, and a, a very strange situation and, 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 and feeling, but it's also in a way um, a forewarning and, and uh, it may foreshadow uh, some sort of uh, future. And, and especially if we, uh, understand that even the virus is one of the symptoms of a larger environmental crisis. And that for Venice, uh, the main problem may not be the pandemic, but uh, sea level rise. And of course, we'll talk about that later. Yes, and, and, and in fact, let me, I, I want to come back to the thing about Venice and the tourists, but I would just share that um, Andy and Lynn and Shaul and I met on this project called Living Underwater. And Shaul has a screenshot of this, we may give it you in, in a minute. But the idea of this, the whole reason that it was called Living Underwater, um, a Jewish exploration of climate change, is that the whole planet is facing climate change over the remainder of our lives. There's no question that the world is changing rapidly because of our behaviors. And it's doing a huge amount of damage to us. And this idea of doing a project called Living Underwater was because we believed that in all sorts of respects, Venice was a microcosm of the beauty of human civilization, the challenges that we are creating for ourselves, and truthfully, literally in terms of rising seawaters, that Venice, we already saw what it was like to have an enormous hurricane hit New York City and hit the Jersey Shore a few years ago and to be reminded that we're only a few, uh, a few feet above sea level in certain places, but Venice clearly is much lower. Um, that's where Living Underwater came, uh, came about as a project and, and some of us were in Venice for that. And just after we left, there was the second highest aqua alta in history, which is to say Venice was literally underwater and there were boats in St. Mark's Square and so on. Now, when when we were there, Andy and Lynn were there for longer than I was, but I was there for a little while. I was, I hadn't known this. I'd been in Venice once as a kid with my parents, but I hadn't really understood the issue about the huge cruise ships. And there are huge, huge cruise ships. Whereas the image, the, the, the romantic image of, oh, there's Sandy with it as well. The romantic image of, um, of Venice from the 18th century was travelers doing the Grand European Tour and finding themselves and staying in Venice for three months or six months. And now there are these enormous boats that disgorge 3,000 people who are there for four hours and they run in, take photographs, buy a souvenir and leave. And even when we were there, it was hard to understand why an Italian regional government or why the city of Venice hadn't banned them. And partly I think it was a catch-22 because so many people were now dependent on the livelihood provided by those tourists that it was impossible to imagine them not being there. And so my question, Shaul, to you is, as Venetians suddenly experienced their city in its beauty and in quiet, but at a point that it also meant that all sorts of people literally, the cafes and bars weren't open, the souvenir sellers couldn't sell, what has been the mood? What has been the conversations? What are the, how is Venice, is Venice a year from now gonna be the same as it was a year ago? Or will it be different? What do you think that's gonna be and what do you think it should be? 
Well, in, in a nutshell, there, are, there have been two kinds of responses. One response was to, to try to uh, go back to normal as soon as possible, including you know, letting restaurants, putting more chairs and tables out of the streets, so, so occupying more uh, uh, room just to you know, uh, compensate for the money that was lost during the, uh, the pandemic. And then on the other hand, there has been a very interesting reaction on the part of many Venetians who say, this is in fact a precious window of opportunity to rethink the city, to rethink a city not in terms of investing only exclusively on tourism. And I should say, and that's very important, and tourism is not just one undifferentiated uh, uh, Phenomenon. I mean, there are very different types of tourism. In fact, I am very much in favor of, of cultural tourism, experiential tourism, and, in, and, and I think, you know, especially in Jewish tourism, that's a very important uh, segment. Um, so some of us are trying to, to, to make some proposals to, to, to meet, to discuss. Uh, Venice would be the ideal laboratory to uh, fight um, environmental crisis to address climate change. So it would be a perfect place to invite scholars, to invite scientists, to invite artists to interact, to make this a place to think not only about how to solve the problems of Venice, but use Venice also to solve the problem in Manhattan, in uh, uh, Hong Kong, in all the coastal cities in the world that are so vulnerable. So since there is such a symbolic and iconic uh, sort of uh, role that Venice has historically fulfilled, there are images of Venice everywhere, you know, so many visitors. Uh, so I, I hope that, and Living Underwater was an example of that. So using the city and using the heritage of, of Jewish Venice, not simply to reflect on itself, but also to make reflections and perhaps even offer ideas to the larger, uh, sort of Jewish community and ultimately to, to, to the world. Of course, I'm very pessimistic. I'm convinced that especially we don't have the right leaders at the moment. Probably the cruise ships will come back. People will make the claim that, you know, precisely because the, the cruise ships were kept away for three months, now we have to get them back as soon as possible. But that would really kill us. So I really hope that we can find some alternative. I look when you I, I wrote this down as you were speaking when you when you said this offers a precious window of opportunity to rethink the city it was such a striking phrase to me because that is true for the world this what has happened is a precious window of opportunity to rethink not just the city of Venice but really to rethink the whole world and all sorts of questions of balance and I have to say that um, to the extent that in working with you on living underwater it made me think about Venice more and be more aware of the issues I really I really feel that the question I mean it's crazy for me to say this in New York but the question of whether and how Venice in Italy addresses the topic of the big cruise ships and Venice on the other side side of this is almost a microcosm of the extent to which we can or cannot feel hopeful about the future of the world because it really will be crazy if a year from now it is the same as it was a year ago. And there have to be between, between, this again is I think an issue for the whole world, between absolute craziness over here and nothing happening and everything closed over there, there has to be an intermediate point. The notion of saying, let's have half the number of cruise ships for the next five years, or let's add in a sufficient taxation that some of them will be deterred and will invest that money in reclaiming Venice for its young people. And of course, there's no reason that I should suddenly sit here in New York and say, oh, it's obvious that Venice should do that. I also sit here in New York and think it's obvious coming out of this crisis that all Americans should have high quality healthcare because we have seen the tragic consequences of not doing so. So the mere fact that somebody thinks something should happen doesn't mean that it will, but, 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 well, that, mean, that leads me back in a sense, Andy, to you, because the, 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 the conversation about the future of Venice and the future of the world is an ongoing conversation. Academics are involved in it, politicians are involved in it, environmentalists are involved in it. Um, it was your intuition 
and Shaul's and mine and other people, that art has a particular role to play. And I think I'd love you, first of all, to just step back and, and say a little bit about the evolution of your own environmental practice, uh, your own artistic practice in relationship to social issues as somebody who's Jewish, as a Jewish woman, in whatever respect, and, and, and try and give a flavor of the role of art for each one of us as creators, even if we're not as talented as you are, and the role of art in sparking conversation in a society. Um, that's a, okay. So first of all, there's a very trite sentence that says a, a picture paints a thousand words. And I deeply believe that you can alter someone's consciousness through a powerful image instantly, whereas you could make that person read seven articles and listen to five lectures, but maybe with one powerful image, you can do the job in seconds. Um, it generally, in all of my art, I'm after changing somebody's perspective or making them aware of a problem. A lot of my art deals with issues within Judaism, particularly issues within the Rabbanut here. Um, and I think that all of the five brilliant, amazing, talented artists that were involved in this and the videographer, all of us found multiple ways of communicating climate change issues, issues within Judaism, Venice's problems in, in etchings, in drawings, in our sketchbooks. And, um, and I have to say that the response, this, this entire project was, part, was accepted to the Jerusalem Biennale. And it was one of the major shows in the Jerusalem Biennale last October. And the response that we got from people that were visiting the exhibition was amazing. And really and truly, for me, one of the most interesting things was that each of the five artists was required to keep an art journal in their entire month in Venice. And then in the end, they were required to turn in to the project 15 images, 15 pages that they loved. And what we did is these journals ended up being so beautiful that we placed each artist's journal in a little glass box. And then we created a facsimile journal. We took the best pages of those journals and we created a real journal that people could flip through. And you would think in this day and age that most people would just walk right by this because you have to invest time. But in fact, people were so drawn to and emotionally, uh, intimately in love with these tiny pages of paper and the action of turning the pages, um, which I thought, again, reflects a deep human need for touching things. Um, which is an even bigger conversation that we can have in another one of these about what do we do when you can't see the art anymore, when you can't get close to it, when you can't, you know, see eye to eye to the painting, does virtual, virtual art galleries, does it do, do the same job? Um, but I'm, I'm convinced that, that art can heal people and it can also make people deeply aware of their behaviors. Um, the artists were so moved by this project. We all fell so in love with Venice and the ghetto and the issues and what Judaism has to offer in the way of solutions for climate change that everybody committed to staying involved in the project, even though, you know, technically, formally, the project is over. So. Yes, and, and, and indeed, there'll be more on this in the future, but I, I, I want to share with everybody, and, and we know that people come in and, and watch these things as it were not in real time, but Living Underwater is an ongoing project. Um, we've really clearly decided, not only between Batvanatsia and Chazam, but the artists involved and a growing number of people, that this is a, a forward-facing project. And at some point um, on the other side of this, we're planning to redo the website. But I think I would certainly say to anybody who's watching this who feels artistically drawn to the engagement between art, Jewish tradition, and the future of the world, you should feel free. You can send me an email at nigel at chazon.org. You can go to the Living Underwater uh, website. But there is no question that at some point in the future, we're actually gonna invite people to submit new pieces of art 
to what we, we see as an ongoing uh, project in this regard. Um, um, Shaul put up the, the, I think, one of the snow globes. I just wanted actually to give two examples of, of Andy's art just to, to bring this down. One of them, which was prior to living underwater, was a piece um, that Andy made, which shows essentially a paratrooper, an Israeli paratrooper, who stood there, who you can recognize as a paratrooper with his parachute behind him, and an umbilical cord going from him to his mother, 30 or 40 feet away. And it was such, without needing any commentary, it was so intense to be able to see this and to understand that generation after generation of kids in Israel have gone to serve in the army and generations of mothers have watched their kids do this with pride, with a sense of connection, with love, and also with a sense of fear. And in that one image, so much was packed in that was so profound and so moving. And I, I don't even remember when I first saw that, Andy, but it had a big impact on me. And the other one I wanna show people is a piece that Andy did for Living Underwater, where one of the things that's incredibly striking in Venice is the architecture and the houses and the tall houses on the canals and the chimneys. And that's one jigsaw piece. The second jigsaw piece is of course, that trees are so central in Jewish life. The Torah we say is, it's Chayim, the tree of life. And the third thing, of course, is that in our generation, we have a new understanding of trees because as a, as a society, we're putting too much carbon out into the atmosphere. And when we cut down trees, we make that worse. And when we plant trees, we make it better. And Andy produced this piece. And it's essentially showing an image of Venice, but it is imagining that the chimneys, instead of putting out carbon, are actually literally living trees, green things that are actually making the world a better place rather than a, a worse place. I, Andy, can you actually say a word about either of those pieces, like how they arose and what it was like creating it and how you felt about them and just a couple of words about that. Um, so one of the beauties of the program and the way that it was designed is that before we ever started making art, we invited scholars to talk to us and Shaul had arranged for us to have a really in-depth tour of the ghetto. Um, there's an, a marvelous new biblical garden that if you don't know it's there, you would never see. And that inspired a gorgeous etching that Lynn Avedenka did. But we kind of immersed ourselves in, in Jewish Venetian, in Jewish Venice. And we, we also at the same time had incredible lectures by all these different scholars. They were Skype lectures where we listened to what Judaism has to say and what the problems are. And then we started working. And one of the things that we heard over and over again was adaptation, that we are going to have to learn to adapt and we're gonna to have to rethink all of our, all of our habits. Um, and that's really how I came up with the idea of trees growing out of the chimneys because you really can't have fires in Venice anymore. I mean, I think it's pretty dangerous. I, I suppose some people can, but everywhere you look at the tops of these gorgeous buildings that are centuries old are these massive chimneys. They almost look like, like factory chimneys and they're, they're empty. And I, I thought, you know, how amazing would it be if you looked up and there were trees growing out of all of these chimneys? And I think that that sort of thinking outside the box is the way we're going to have to go with this entire problem. We're going to, you know, as Jews, we're going to have to go back to the text and say, okay, let's look at this again. Maybe there's something we missed. There's a new idea here. I think as human beings, we're going to constantly have to say, how can I live differently? And you know, I'm, as you were speaking, Andy, I'm thinking, first of all, that just this story is such a metaphor for the potential role of art in relationship to the climate crisis, because it is like we literally all look at our cityscapes, but we don't register them. They're so familiar to us. And the combination of your unfamiliarity, the question and the art suddenly provokes in a different way. But I'm thinking now about Christo and people who did art on a big scale. And the image that we looked at earlier on of, of, of hundreds of pink flamencos in the canals. And I want to say, what would it be to take that image 
and turn it into like a full-scale Christo art project and figure out what it would actually be. So that's just like a random image as it were, but what would it be to take that piece of art, Andy, in the snow globe and figure out how we put a hundred trees into the tops of those chimneys, right? Just for three months, right? As part of the Biennale, right? When is gonna be the next Biennale? Like, let's do uh, that. So I heard really sad news. Well, the Biennale has been postponed because of the virus. And so the next Art Biennale won't be until 2022. So hey, guys, it's happened live. It gives us, it gives us two years to figure out <laughs> how to put a hundred living trees it will into the chimneys of Venice, because what a profound image and statement that would be for the world. And by the way, on both sides, right? For Venice is a metaphor for the world, but also it's Shavuot next week, right? It's Zaman Matan Torotenu. It's the time of the giving of the Torah. And the famous rabbinic midrash on that is why is it not, why is it not the time of the receiving of the Torah? And the answer, of course, is like the Torah is there to be given. It's given by our ancestors. It's given by those who, who came before us. The question of whether and how we receive it is up to us. And the reason that we have the cycle of the Jewish calendar is that Shavuot comes every year, and as it were, Shavuot is the same. The Torah reading is the same, but we are different and the world is different. And so the next Biennale is gonna be the first Biennale after all of this. How do we reflect this? I wanna, just before I ask a, a couple more things, I do want to say there's a chat line here, and if people want to ask, we'll probably have time for one or two questions. If you have a, a question that you want, you can either put it in the in the chat line, or we'll uh, we'll in, we'll invite you to um, just to say something. Lynn, I'm not sure if you're there, but do you want to say a couple of words about about Detroit, how Detroit is and art in Detroit at the moment? Hi. <laughs> um, well, I have a, a lovely studio of my own, which is where I'm sitting and which, which is where, pretty much where I've been since um, we shut down the print shop that I run, which is in, really in the heart of the Eastern market, which is a fruit and vegetable produce market. Um, if you've been reading about the United States, Michigan has been in the news. Uh, all of our um, elected officials have been um, at the receiving end of the president's ire. Um, Detroit's really been decimated by uh, this virus um, and it's hit the black community really tragically so. Um, and also people feel it's some kind of personal affront to their liberty evidently to wear a mask. So we're dealing with all of that nonsense. Um, yeah, without really knowing uh, we're shut down until June 12th now, um, and there are since there's no real leadership at the top, there's no real leadership filtering down uh, about how to proceed. So it's just very strange times, and it is great to see friends. <laughs> we 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 began this conversation. I I was asking Andy about Israel and Israel coming back to life, and 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 as Andy said. Israel locked down very tightly. Um, people got with the plot. Part of the ultra-Orthodox community was a little bit slow, but ultimately they got it too. Um, and they've controlled it, now they're coming back to life. I'm very struck that Israel has a certain kind of social solidarity. Famously, um, uh, Ruby Rivlin, the president, gave a speech a couple of years ago and he talked about four tribes in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox, secular Israelis, Israeli Orthodox Zionists, and Israeli Palestinians. And his observation was that they're four different tribes, and that it was a challenge for Israel to think about how they relate to each other. But, it, but I've been struck during this virus that each one of those four tribes has very, very strong social networks and very strong family networks and is very supportive. And I think in general, Israel has been a very supportive place. And America, as we know, is very, very individualistic and anarchic in some ways. And I think it is not helping this country in this period. And Shaul, I'm interested to know between those two poles, what has Venice been like? What is the mood between Venetians? Have people been supportive? Are they itching to, like, what, is it, what does it feel like? What have been the rhythms of connection or shopping or how things have worked? 
Well, um, in, in the early days of, of the lockdown, some of us felt that we were going back to a time, you know, uh, 40 years ago when there was such a thing as a no tourist season. And so when only Venetians were left in, in, in the city. Uh, but it was also the, 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 the sad uh, realization that there are so few of us that we are no longer a sustainable city. And so, you know, there were beautiful pictures and, and we were also slightly amused that, you know, on CNN or, or, or on, on many international media, there were these images of, of empty Venice with this uh, uh, clean canals as if it was a sort of uh, uh, paradise on earth that had uh, come back. But in fact, it was more like the H-bomb effect of, of, of seeing these empty streets and empty uh, squares uh, because, and, and that was always very sad. Then we had all these uh, images that many people thought were, were true with all sorts of animals in the, in the, uh, in the canals, you know, uh, dolphins and, 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 and uh, other sea creatures. Uh, but the one thing that I wanna say, and, and that will give you, I think, a very practical example of what is on many people's minds. So for many people uh, that were not in tourism, the last 20 years became an opportunity to make a lot of money by saying, you know, your grandmother died, her apartment is empty, let's put it in Airbnb, and you'll have a ceaseless flow of tourists and that will make you rich. All of a sudden, people who were in other lines of work uh, found that all their reservation had been canceled and they had empty apartments. So my simple, very simple and incredibly difficult recipe would be the following. I have four apartments and currently these four apartments are on Airbnb. And I hope that, you know, as many people will come because the shorter they come, the highest I can, you know, charge them and, and, and make more money. On the other hand, if the, God forbid, the, the virus comes back, we'll be back to square one. And once again, all the tourists will cancel again, and maybe there won't, won't be a third time. So imagine that I have four apartments, and instead of having all four on Airbnb, I keep one on Airbnb for tourists, which also allow me to charge them more and also to fix the other three. One goes to students. And so as an academic, I have finally students can afford to live in the city. One goes to a resident and the resident can be someone who will be the plumber who will come to fix the other two apartments. And crucially, the fourth, which to me is a very important apartment, is the one for Andy, for Lynn, for you, for all the artists, for all the activists, for all the scholars who will be coming, not for the two or three days of their absolutely respectable holiday, but for the kind of experience that we shared. Because my, you know, I think one of the, um, the, the ideas, the tenets of Bet Venezia is that when people come to Venice with a creative project, with an intellectual project, with an educational project, and they stay here for longer than a week, something happens. And that involves both them, and I'm so happy to see Andy you know, nodding, uh, and, and, and something happens to us. We have that kind of intensive relationship. And I feel what we ultimately have is the creation of a temporary community, also a temporary Jewish community, that have such a meaningful time together that at the very least is very important for them, but also may end up producing something like this that is now traveling and has a life of its own. So this is also something that is economically sustainable and viable. And so this is, I think, the vocation, because let's not forget that, uh, I don't know exactly where you live, Nigel, but if you live in New York, there are more Jews in your building than in the whole of Venice. And there are more <laughs> Jews in your neighborhood than in the whole of Italy. So the future of Jewish Venice also depends on having this uh, educational, uh, uh, visitors, these experiential tourists, and not just the one who come to the ghetto for an hour to see the synagogues and then go away. Look, I, I not only agree with that, Shaul, but again, I want to note that what you're describing as the particular challenges of Venice are in fact challenges that London and New York and many other cities have as well, but they're that much more intense in Venice. 
So the challenge of young people living in London or New York and real estate is the same. And the issue of Airbnb is the same also in Barcelona and also in Amsterdam, and to some extent in a slightly different way also in Jerusalem, right? A quarter of Israelis are out of work right now because the high-tech sector has been a great success story in Israel in the last 20 or 30 years, but Israel is itself very, very dependent on tourism, and that, that tension plays out there. I'm going to take a question from Paul Solomon, and then I think we're going we're gonna to start to wrap. But Paul, you're up. But I, I'm gonna, there you go. Okay, got it. Well, actually, I was really glad to hear, you know, uh, show what you just said about, you know, inviting a, a multiplicity of people. I think, I think for those of us who are artists, um, I often pose the question myself and other artists I know, um, is the art you're making as fulfilling as it is personally and as much as it moves people who come to an exhibition, uh, is it getting beyond the circle of people who, who look at the arts, who come to performances, who listen to readings? Um, I don't know, I, I gradually, actually pretty suddenly, went from my full-time career as a photographer to going back to school to get a, a degree so I could teach in university because I just felt I wanna make a more direct impact on people's lives and try to. Um, so it, it concerns me as exciting as it is, and I've, I've done big projects too, you know, to, like the idea of putting the trees on the tops of buildings in Venezia in a couple of years. Um, I would hate to see, uh, you know, collectively us put so much of our resources of time and, and money that's been raised to make these grand statements, unless there's a component of it that's really more activist and, you know, working with, um, communities of people working with corporations just really trying to change it because with climate changes is happening now and the ramifications are are imminent oh, shall I? okay first of all thank you this is a very important comment and i uh of course my immediate reaction is to say that i'm an academic and i turned to art because i thought that being an academic was not having an, an impact and i thought that artists had a more uh, sort of successful way of, of reaching out to but ultimately let me emphasize that the beauty of living underwater as far as i'm concerned is that it was actually not simply an art project it was a project that brought together the artists andy and lynn the activist nigel the scholars and intellectuals yeah. um i think that of course we cannot possibly offer solutions for just anything. We cannot save the world. I think we have to fulfill a specific role that Venice has. It strikes me that even makes you feel kind of guilty sometimes. How come that, you know, we had that flooding in uh, back in November 2019. Uh, that was the second, as Nigel mentioned, was the second worst flooding we had. And it was covered massively uh, internationally. Sure. One person died. It probably made the news more than a lot of the hurricanes that hit the US and certainly the hurricanes, the cyclones that kill people. Uh, there was this major cyclone in, in, in India and in Bangladesh. So whether one likes it or not, Venice occupies a very, very important symbolic role that makes uh, sort of blown up uh, out of proportion its significance uh, in the entire world. So I think that making an artistic intervention in, in, in Venice is a way to broadcast certain messages, certain way of, of reflect about these ideas, which is something that we need to cultivate. Um, and hopefully living underwater was not made to uh, make an impact locally. Actually, quite the opposite. I don't think it will make any impact locally, but I'm sure that it can help to make an impact in many other places and can generate other types of projects. And so I, the, the Biennale, since it was mentioned, you know, it's, it's a good example of how the art world can also magnify certain important social issues um, and uh, also bring together different types of, of people. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we, we're gonna we're gonna um, start to wrap and, and come into land. Um, I'm I'm gonna invite um, Andy and Cheryl each to have a, a last word and and tell us something that gives you hope or something that you're reading at the moment or doing you want to recommend to us. But before we do, I want to say that in this wonderful way of things, um, Shaul turns out to be a professor of Shakespeare, which is to say not merely um, that his English is remarkably good for somebody for whom Italian is his first language, but actually his Shakespeare is better than my Shakespeare, which is, is obviously embarrassing, but you, to your credit. But, um, but along the way, Shaul is now setting up a master's in the environmental humanities which is the first Masters in the Environmental Humanities in Southern Europe. It's about to uh, admit its first group of students and it's taught in English. You can do it from any place in the United States or Canada or England or Australia, as well as Italy or anywhere else in Europe. It's a fascinating program. <laughs> On top of anything else, and this is a sign that I'm clearly more American nowadays than English, um, the cost of this is less than $5,000 for this master's degree, which is for certain a lot less than any master's in the United States. So we're going to put details of that up on the Chazam website. And if you're interested in that master's in environmental humanities, or you know somebody who might be, feel free to send that on. Um, but with that, um, Andy, first of all, over to you, some last thoughts, wisdom, hope, advice for us, something you've been inspired by? Um, hmm. I'm, I'm typically optimistic. I think a lot of people learned a lot of difficult lessons um, in this whole lockdown about the importance of quiet and listening and being and not running from thing to thing. I think that that's I think that's actually been wonderful. I think anthropologically, humanly, there's a whole lot of wonderful lessons that have been learned. Um, so in that respect, I think it's, I think some of this has been a good thing. I also think, um, I was talking to my friend Danny Gordas who said, well, you know, in his grandfather's generation, there was a Spanish flu. And in his father's generation, there was polio. And in our generation, there's Corona. So I think on the one hand, everybody thinks that we've had the worst epidemic pandemic ever. I think that these things do come in cycles. I'm, I'm very, um, I have to say Israel's doing all kinds of stuff about viruses and testing and, and you know, instant read things. I think that's something to look forward to. And I still, I'm convinced that um, art and literature and music heal us. Event, you know, at the end of the day, those are the things that heal us. Um, without them, I think we'd be completely bereft. Um, whether it's on a little scale or a big scale, um, I think those things matter enormously, especially in times like this. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that living underwater and, and Venice, there's something that gets under your skin, both the project and the place and it doesn't let you go. So I'm along for the ride, really. I want to see where it goes. Thank you. Shaul. Well, uh, Living Underwater was partly inspired by a book uh, called The Great Derangement by the Indian writer Amitav Ghosh. And since that publication, he has a novel out called Gun Island. And I would uh, recommend this novel for those who love Venice, for those who have concern about uh, the environmental crisis, and for those who see the entanglement between the environmental crisis and the migrant crisis, because this is a story of, uh, of an Indian scholar who meets a young Bangladeshi migrant in the ghetto of Venice, and and I've said so. And I totally, totally um, echo uh, Andin says that. Uh, Art has so many important functions in this in this world that we really need to uh, propel living underwater forward in, in all possible forms. And I think it would be really wonderful to have some uh, new ideas and contribution from the people that have been with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. I, I just want to end by noting that although we know it to be true that Pesach is freedom from, 
It's freedom from oppression, from want, from slavery. And that's what Sadonite is. We literally leave the narrow places. Then we go on this 49-day journey when we're in the wilderness. There are no rules. We have radical freedom. The Torah has not yet been given. And then the Torah is given, Shavuot, on the 50th day. And we receive the Torah. And it's a different kind of freedom. It's a mature freedom. It's not freedom from. It's freedom to. Freedom to choose to self-limit ourselves. That not everything we can do should we do. And it strikes me not only that that's true for us as individuals, but for example, in the case of Venice and the whole world, we're learning, for example, that not everything that we can do economically or in relationship to tourism or all sorts of things, we wouldn't wish those things, as it were, to be deprived, to be deprived of them in, in some kind of a totalitarian sense. And yet this question of how we limit our own freedoms in a mature way is an important question for the world right now. And the lead up to Shavuot is certainly a time to think about that. But I want to add that I'm very struck, just shifting gears for a second, that the Jewish community, like everybody right now, the Jewish community has been really hit. The summer camps have closed. Synagogues are worried about membership. Like people don't know what the future models are. And things are shrinking back into a core. And in that process, the place of art is an incredibly important thing for everybody to think about, and not just people who think of themselves as professional artists. And the key question is, is art a luxury or a necessity? And I think it too easily looks as if it is a luxury. And yet, to imagine any of our homes with nothing on the wall, to imagine our lives without literature, without film, without TV, without music, is literally impossible to do. And so as the world moves forward and starts, as it were, to come out of lockdown, and as the Jewish community does so, and as we cycle into Shavuot and beyond Shavuot, as well as everything else, I think that it is right for us to think about the place of art in this conversation. And certainly at Chazan, the word Chazan means vision, and I haven't been to my office for quite a long time, but a friend and a former board member, Andy Blau, used to be head of Time Life, and at one point he came to me and he said, Nigel, I've got 11 million pictures in my photo archive. Pick one or two that you would like and I'll, I'll get it printed nicely for you. You can put it on the wall. And the one ultimately that I chose that's over my desk is, of all things, a picture of Jack Kennedy and Bobby. <laughs> and the reason is that Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. And the reason I chose it is that I love very deeply the line that is attributed to Bobby Kennedy. Some see what is and ask why. I dream of what might be and ask why not. And that question is, I think, the question that stands within Jewish tradition, that stands in the role of activist artists, which includes, by the way, Shoshana Guggenheim, who I'm happy joined us during this conversation I wasn't able to welcome earlier on. It stands behind that Venezia. And it's a question for all of us. And so I want to wish you Chodesh Tov and ahead of next week, Chag uh, Sameach. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.